Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wondery Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Aoife Cook. I got a job as a second-class welder. I, I went to tech mm-hmm. and then I went on to do all sorts of different things, crane driver, crane chaser, grease monkey, trades assistant, Yeah, all a great wage and good conditions. This is the story of the Jobs for Women campaign. It starts in 1980s Wollongong, New South Wales. The biggest employer in Australia, BHP, runs the Port Kembla Steelworks. Tens of thousands of well-paid jobs are available in this working class area and many positions can't be filled. Quality work for women in Wollongong at this time was scarce, but BHP refused to employ more than a tiny number of women. But this was the early 1980s, and the feminist movement had gathered momentum, so the women of Wollongong fought back. Over the next decade, socialist feminist activists and migrant women came together under the Jobs for Women campaign. Their struggles and successes all the way to a high court win in 1989, impacted the lives of women across Australia. This week's guest on Women on the Line, Robin Murphy, was there. All right, well, my name's Robin Murphy. Um, I'm a retired steel worker, a retired filmmaker. I'm not a retired activist. Um, Very much see myself as a feminist, as a socialist, as a person that's continuing to, to make a difference, to right wrongs. Um, uh, when I was at high school, the so we're going way, way back, <laughs> um, the Vietnam War was on uh, and I was totally opposed to that. I was totally opposed to conscription. Men were getting conscripted next to me, right, left and centre. I had friends that were being conscripted to fight a war that we didn't feel that we should be part of. So I got involved right, you know, when I was about 16 or 17. And within a few years, um, around about 1967 or 68, the women's movement started. So I got really excited by that as well. And I worked at the Steelworks for about 30 years. Um, I was active in the union. I was active in the women's movement. I suppose people would say I'm a very confident person. And I think the reason for that is when you have been involved in any sort of struggle and you've won, it really does, it does make you feel confident and it does, yeah, well, you know that you can do things and you can do things together. So I, my character is very much a, one of, I suppose, an optimist, but yeah. An active op- optimist. We're really on the way, girls, really on the way. Hooray for equal pay, girls, hooray for equal pay. They're going to give it to most of us in spite of all their fears. But do they really need to make us wait 50 years? 
The Jobs for Women campaign was centered around the steelworks factory, the BHP in Wollongong. Can you describe what type of activities and actions the group got up to? Mm. Well, so we had an action committee. Uh, it was very small when we first started. We started to do all our research, how, you know, how many women are unemployed. We found out we did research. Two-thirds of the young unemployed were female. That was a huge number. Uh, and we knew that if we were going to have, an, again, a campaign in Wollongong, uh, if we did not involve all of the migrant women in that area, because Wollongong, the majority of the population were not people that were Australian-born. They were people from non-English-speaking backgrounds in different communities, Macedonian, Turkish, Greek, Chilean, Spanish, Vietnamese, um, a, a wonderful mixing pot of cultures. So our big challenge was to involve those women. And most of the women that we wanted to involve weren't registered with you know, the employment services at the time because most of them were married mm. and most of them were very much isolated in their own ha homes, in their own communities and didn't have English. So one of the major activities that we did was ensure that we got our information interpreted into about six or seven basic languages. Uh, we used the community radio, Tuvox FM it was called at the time, um, to uh, to broadcast what we were and doing. And then, of course, we had our meetings of the women. Um, and they were quite interesting because uh, we would talk about the campaign and we would encourage people to lodge complaints with the Anti-Discrimination Board. This was right at the beginning. And for a lot of the migrant women, they were absolutely petrified about putting anything on paper um, and their husbands were also worried that they would lose their jobs in the steelworks. So there was a fairly huge process of explaining um, what the anti-discrimination legislation was and why what BHP was doing was illegal and why we should do things together. And so meetings, you know, for example, someone like myself or some of the other um, Australian women would explain and then we'd stop and then we'd have interpreters in about four or five different languages and then we'd have to stop again to check everybody understood and there'd be lots of questions. So meetings went forever. <laughs> they were long but absolutely worth it. Well, if your meetings go forever, you're definitely a real activist then. It's a, it's a <laughs> but sure, they were good meetings. They weren't sure boring. Sign. There was nothing boring about the whole thing. Nothing at all. Yeah, It was yeah. exciting. This giant big Australian had the pickings of the crop. Only used the work of men to keep it at the top. Women were rejected without a second thought. So 34 good women took the giant to the court. The giants made of iron steel and didn't feel a thing. The women worked together. I don't think there was anyone pushing women working in male-dominated industries. Um, definitely not. So 
While the union in principle supported us, they were very concerned that we would divide the workforce. Well, not we, but they said, well, look, last time this happened, um, some of our members were displaced and sent to the coke ovens and women got their jobs. And we understood what the what the union was saying. We weren't there to displace men. We weren't there to take men's jobs. We were just there for our own jobs. And, I mean, there were about 23,000 people working in the steelworks. And we, so we just, we talked through what we wanted. And as unemployed women, and we weren't even members of a union, we, at every stage, we said we would involve the union. The union was... The older part was the predecessor of the AWU in Port Kembla. was called the Federated Ironworkers Association. And the president or secretary, Nando Lelli, was an an Italian worker and he knew what discrimination was when he'd come to Port Kembla and worked in the steelworks. So it wasn't something unusual for them. But there was still a little bit of convincing to do and... Well, we just maintained a really good relationship with the union um, and it was a two-way thing. Um, We would talk to them and we'd also get our leaflets printed there, our phone calls, our photocopying. Um, So, you know, um, I think, you know, because we knew that we needed their support, because we were up against the biggest private company in Australia, we knew... We not only had to get their support, but pretty much every union in in the area. So that was key. It would have been absolutely crazy to run a campaign without the support of the union we were going to join. So we then organised a public meeting and we approached all the local members of parliament, state and federal, which were all Labor at the time, and um, we said, you know, we and we sat down and we talked with them and we said we'd really love it if you could put out a press release supporting us, which they did. Um, so we got publicity from from them. Um, the same thing happened with the Iron Workers Union. Um, we asked them to put out statements of support, and every other union and the South Coast Labor Council. Um, we so we did some. So when we were approaching unions, we had to go on the job and talk to people. So I remember going down to the wharves and talking to the wharfies and we all got crammed in a really small crib room and there were about oh, about 15 or 20 men there and I, yeah, so just talked talk to them about what the campaign was about, explained we, weren't, we didn't want to take men's jobs, we just wanted our jobs. We thought that BHP as the biggest employer should be employing women. And told them that we told them our story. We just said, well, look, you know, we're applying for work. We think we can do the work. But they keep on telling us there's no jobs for women. And we'd have a collection on the spot for the campaign. Our heroines of history fought for equal rights. Now we're fighting for a job we face that giant's might. We learn to work together like the Amazons of old. Face that mighty patriarch to lose his mighty hold. The giants made of iron and steel and didn't feel a thing. The women worked together. Now the giant feels their sting.
Across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line on the Community Radio Network. One of the trade union women, and her name's Faye Campbell. She's fantastic. She's still alive. She's this... She's tall and she's absolutely beautiful, but she's, she tells things as they are mm-hmm. and she swears as much as the, best, <laughs> the next person. Uh, and, and she said, I think she suggested we set up a tent embassy. So we set up a tent embassy outside the steelworks. It happened to be, like today, one of the coldest days of the year, absolutely freezing. It was in July and lots of it was really windy. Um, where we set it up was right in the middle of the main road that goes through the steelworks. Um, and we had about two or three tents and we were camped on rubble. It wasn't even proper lawn. So it was very uncomfortable. But it, look, the reality was we didn't sleep for those two days. We were just, it was such a exciting, we were all hyped up. The other thing is we stupidly put a big sign saying, honk if you support the right of women to work. Well, we had that many honks and all the big trucks with the coal honk and we, and, and we collected signatures. We collected over 2,000 signatures from workers going in and out of work in, in one day alone. And we had the, a petition saying we support the right of women to work in Australian Iron and Steel, which was what it was called. Um, so I thought that was a great thing to do. And, and even I remember even a police van pulling up and signing the petition. That was really, you know, like, I mean, it was a great indicator that the whole community was supporting us. And those men, and we had it, because we had a leaflet in different languages, a lot of the men took that leaflet home to their wives. Um, and, you know, like um, Wollongong's never been a very rich area. as um, And, you know, people need to work. So that also helped. And the fact that um, we had the tent embassy also attracted media attention. You were inspired by the Aboriginal tent embassy, of course, in in Canberra. Canberra. Yeah, yeah. So we we thank our First Nation people for for that too. Um, So we... So when the, a lot of the migrant women who couldn't read what was happening in the newspaper but could see the pictures and they could see there were women doing something at the steelworks, they all came back to check whether they were getting jobs from the steelworks and they just came over across the road and joined us. We were sort of like a de facto employment office, <laughs> but right. it just took a long time to win those jobs. Yeah. Anti-discrimination legislation had recently been passed in Australia, but it was yet to be tested in court. The Jobs for Women campaign, still a small group and reliant on legal aid, took on the challenge. The solidarity and grassroots successes of the campaign to date propel the women forward to face the corporate legal team of Australia's biggest employer. The law in itself is great, but if you don't test it and see how strong or how weak it is, then you never know whether it's actually useful or not. And by testing the legislation over a number of different um, parts of the law, we expose loopholes and and weaknesses. So in the end, the anti-discrimination legislation also became strengthened. 
So they were held in the anti-discrimination tribunal, which is a little bit supposed to be more informal than a normal court, but in reality it's the same thing. Um, and for the migrant women, it would have been... I mean, I was petrified. I, you know, I'd never been to court in my life before. And being cross-examined by the company lawyer is is quite intimidating. And for the migrant women, they had to rely on interpreters. Well, we had issues with some of the interpreters. Um, we had a Turkish woman and the... I don't know who organised the interpreters at that time, but she had a Cypriot interpreter, a male Cypriot, who was quite hostile to her. So before she even got up on the witness box, she'd been told by her male interpreter, you know, what are you doing here? You're disgracing your family and your community. So that would have been really difficult for her. The court itself, it went for 23 or 24 days. And... um, a lot of it hinged around the company saying that they would have loved to employ, basically their argument was, we'd love to employ women, but we've got a Shops and Factories Act that says that women can't lift more than 35 pounds or 16 kilos. And the Equal Opportunity Commissioner at the time commissioned an independent survey, and that survey was one of the the most crucial parts of the court case because that survey showed that Australian Iron and Steel, um, which was a BHP subsidiary, had no records of what was weight restricted and what wasn't. So that in itself basically showed that it was just a curtain that the company was hiding behind. Um, And there was some other evidence produced where the company has some pretty awful um, letters about women and, you know, they can't wear helmets because of their hairdos. And, I mean, I can't remember all of the (laughs) information on it, but it was a long, drawn-out case. But coupled with that is that, the tribunal um, judged in our favour and so BHP appealed. So it went to the Supreme Court and that's a couple of years later, 88, 87, 88, mm. and then it went to the High Court. So we finally, we didn't get a final judgment till 89 from, and and all the women went down to Canberra and we were all there uh, to listen to what the High Court said, which was obviously, it was a great victory for us. Our heroines of history fought for equal rights. Now we're fighting for a job we face that giant's might. We learn to work together like the Amazons of old. Face that mighty patriarch to lose his mighty hold. The giants made of iron and steel and didn't feel a thing. The women were The the case had flow-on effects throughout Australia um, and in basically no company could discriminate against women at the point of employment. Basically, that established our right 
to work in non-traditional jobs anywhere or and everywhere. Uh, it didn't mean that we didn't, you know, that we didn't still deal with discrimination on the job. Of course. However, uh, it allowed women to enter areas of industry that they wanted to go into. I mean, at the time, leading into 1980, there weren't women truck drivers. There weren't women... There might have been tram drivers, but there weren't bus drivers. There weren't, you know, there were no women working in the mines. Um, so, you know, it opened up a whole area for women... And not just the areas, but most of those areas did have good wages and good conditions and good protection from unions. So that was really key to what women had been facing at the beginning of 1980. Yeah, so it wasn't just about doing the same work as the men in an abstract sense. It was about being able to access the terms and the conditions and the the quality of work. Exactly, yep. I know my first days at work, I'll never forget because the superintendent was awful. (laughs) He just said, oh, you're not one of those women's from the gates, are you, that camped at the gates? And I said, well, what if I was? I'm just here for the job, you know. Um, But everyone else at work was fantastic. People came up to us, said, oh, look, I put money in your bucket. I've signed your petition. Good on you. And for me, and I know it wasn't for all women, I felt like we wa- we sort of came into the steelworks on a wave of victory, just yeah. having won jobs. And the whole feeling in Wollongong was, you know, people looked at us and thought, oh, yeah, you know, you're taking on BHP, you won't win. No way, but good on you for, you know, for trying. Um, and, of course, you know, like, yeah, it was a great victory. I got a job as a second-class welder. I went to tech mm-hmm. and then I went on to do all sorts of different things, crane driver, crane chaser, grease monkey, trades assistant. Yeah, all a great wage and good conditions. Nowadays, Robin is part of the Jobs for Women film producers group, who are recording this important history for the future. So I asked her about their plans for a feature-length piece and their fundraising efforts. So we believe it's time to tell the Jobs for Women story for a number of different reasons. One, it's a great story um, and it has a lot of lessons to pass on to to people about how to fight injustice. I think that's basically, it's about people coming to be- together, um, connecting with as many networks as you can, coming together around very basic principles around the right to work, um, forging links with people who will support you, uh, and... And the lesson is, if you do all of those things and combine to collective, ta- collectively take action, you can win. And many, many times today, people get quite demoralised because they just don't think it's, it's, anyone can do anything. There's a lot of focus on individuals, you know, it's all about me. 
When in reality, I believe that if you feel there is injustice in the world, you can do something about it. And in most cases, you really do have to join together with others to do, to do it. I feel that this film needs to be made by our collective selves. Um, and we know that unions don't have as much money as they had, but we do believe that that the union movement needs to support this because it's all about unions, it's all about women, it's all about standing up and fighting together. We're not very good at recording our history and we have such a rich history um, and, and women's struggles, you know, they're so important and they actually extend to men as well. They're not really... They're about women um, and our ability to gain confidence and, and stick together. And migrant rights, as you've, you've really rights. described Absolutely. very well. Yeah, so so we're not good at it. We need to do it. We actually, this campaign should be taught at schools. It should be in universities. I haven't heard any kids talking about it. <laughs> this film and this project is really sounds like a community endeavour. It's a, a collective of producers, it's That's, volunteers, yes. it's members of the community from Wollongong that have engaged. Isn't yeah. that right? Yes, and, and experienced um, film producers like, you know, the Sydney Art Resistance Grouping, so uh, who have a, a great track record of doing some progressive documentaries and a few dramas as well so um, yeah so we think we've got a winning combination uh, of people that can actually carry it through but we can't do it by ourselves it will be I like to think it's a, f a film that's sort of been supported from the grassroots yeah we we, we just absolutely it's sort of we have to do this because if we don't it's going to be lost Thank you to Robin Murphy. There are many ways you can support the Jobs for Women film, so check out their Facebook page or go to jobsforwomenfilm.com. And a special thank you to the Victorian Trade Union Choir for some of the music for today's show. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigre. Women on the Line programmes can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your thoughts or comments about the programme, so please send an email to our new email address, womenontheline at gmail.com, or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 8377. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Music